The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening. Good evening. We've made it to the third class on Sutta study, and it's okay if you weren't at all of the other ones. Um, these also serve as standalones, if you will. But just as a review, in the first class we talked about kind of an overview of the texts and also um, the, tra- the path or the, the system of training that the Buddha offers overall throughout the suttas, and we looked at some examples of that. And then last week we talked about texts that are focused more on what I call living a life of Dhamma, and that is for lay people living um, with the precepts and living in a way that's wise in a world that doesn't necessarily support um, those kinds of values. And also, of course, the monastic life, so choosing a very literal uh, life of Dhamma, which some people have done and do. And so we looked at suttas that were kind of about that idea of having that way of life. And then uh, tonight, we're going to look at a a different topic, which is meditation and analysis of the mind. And so there's, of course, in the texts, um, many suttas that get very specifically into how we should train our mind. And the Buddha, um, this is now getting into the realm that's very particular to the Buddhist teachings. I mean, all religious teachings will tell how to live a good life, and they'll offer some kind of things you could do that you're not doing now, and so forth. Um, Of course, there are one specific ways that the Buddha taught that. But when we get into this um, detailed understanding of how the mind functions, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, this is something that the Buddha offered in... um, quite a specific way. He had really sat down and noticed and uh, really understood how his mind worked. And he felt that it was useful to pass that along. And it was actually beneficial for us to have some analytical and or psychological teachings that uh, tell us how this thing works that we got born with and aren't necessarily using in the most optimal way. So we're going to talk about, we're going to look at texts that get more specifically into the Buddha's understanding of how the mind works. And his, you know, which then feeds into his path of how to free it. And then also, uh, you might have noticed that we read a couple of suttas that were um, about women. And so I thought this was a timely topic, time also to just bring in, touch into that topic of how women are portrayed in the suttas. Um, I'm not a super expert on this, and so I'd like to put in an advertisement for this Saturday's uh, symposium. If you're interested in the topic, there's a whole day devoted to it at IMC on Saturday. And if you're not into the, if you've had enough analysis after tonight and sort of academic sort of stuff, you can skip the day and just come in the evening. There's an evening program that's going to be a theatrical performance of the death of um, Mahapajapati, who was the first nun and also the Buddha's foster mother. I mean, how often do you get to come to a theater performance at IMC? So I recommend both of those, too, if you're interested in the topic of women. 
Okay, so um, I think we should actually start just by looking at the first sutta that I um, put on the list. And if you haven't read it, that's okay. I believe it's on the handout that I sent. Um, does anybody need it? I actually have one more copy here of the thing that I sent by email. You've got it on your phone. Okay. So if everyone has that, that's fine. And I have it here in the book. So for those of you who have um, been here before, you know that we follow the oral tradition here, in, uh, since that's what Kate mentioned at the beginning. And um, it's nice if people read these out loud. Would someone volunteer to begin reading Soma? We're looking at uh, SN 5.2, which is called SOMA. And it's on the first page of the thing I sent by email, which I have another copy of if you um, don't have it in front of you. Well, here's another one you could have. It's 5.2, yeah. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> And thanks for those of you who did uh, do have other copies of it. Okay, so we'll start. Um, any volunteers? Okay, great. Thank you. How did we pronounce the woman's name? Savati. Um, that's the place, Savati. Oh, yeah. At Savati, then in the morning, the bikuni soma dressed, and taking bowl and robe, entered Savati for alms. When she had walked for alms in Savati and returned from her alms round after her meal, she went to the blind man's grove for the day's abiding. Having plunged into the blind man's grove, she sat down at the foot of a tree for the day's abiding. Um, read through the end of the verse. Okay. Then Mara, the evil one, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the Bukini Soma, desiring to make her fall away from concentration, approached her and addressed her in verse. That state so hard to achieve, which is to be attained by the seers, can't be attained by a woman with her two-fingered wisdom. Okay, so we'll stop there. So um, so what's the scene we've got going on here? So a bhikkhuni is a nun, um, an ordained woman <coughs> under the Buddha, and she, um, so she takes her bowl and robe and goes in and gets alms, just like the monks do, and then she has her meal, um, and then she's going to go and meditate for the rest of the day, which is what you get to do. That's your job when you're a monastic. <laughs> and so she um, she goes and she sits down at the foot of a tree for the day's abiding. So this is all sort of, it's it sounds like stilted language to us, but these are kind of stock phrases that are used around somebody's going to go meditate. Um, so who is Mara? Anybody has heard that term before? Like evil. Yeah, I mean, here he's, it's said he's the evil one. He has a number of roles. Often he's 
personified like this as a, a person who comes. He is um, meant to represent that in the mind that is not awake, I guess you could say. So he's also called the tempter sometimes, one who tempts the mind away from being skillful and being wise. And here it says the evil one or you know, representing unskillful thought and behavior. So, yeah, so some people think of him literally as a, a person or a manifestation, and it's also possible to think of him as the, the parts of our mind that are holding us back. So here, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror, <laughs> um, he come and fall away from concentration. Uh, Mara says this verse to her, uh, the state that's so hard to achieve, which is to be attained by the seers, can't be attained by a woman with her two-fingered wisdom. So he challenges her on the basis of her gender, basically. He says, who are you to do this? And the footnote that goes with this, um, this two-fingered wisdom, it's kind of an odd phrase, right? Um, but it refers to, it's not clear exactly what it refers to, but it might refer to uh, the way women test the rice um, the, uh, in a pot. You know, it's something about you put in two fingers, and two fingers of water or two fingers of rice. I forget what it refers to exactly, but... Essentially, it's a, a reference to kind of very commonplace household kind of ways of thinking. And so, you know, sort of a, a rule of thumb that you use around the house. So he's sort of saying women just have this very rudimentary, simple, in my interpretation, simple way of thinking, and they're not going to be able to achieve these exalted concentration states and states of insight and liberation. Is it also pointing out that it's women's wisdom? I mean, it's not, it's, it's this household wisdom, but is it specific to women? Yeah, I think he's implying that. Sort of like old wives' tales. Yeah, kind of old wives' tales. That's a nice way to say it. Maybe that's a Western equivalent phrase. Yeah, that, you know, men do more important things than measure the rice in the pot, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, so, so here we have a direct challenge, and let's see what she does with it. Um, would someone go on and, and finish off the sutta? Yeah. I'll do it. Thank you. Then it occurred to the Bhikkhuni Soma, now who is that recited the verse? A human being or a non-human being? Then it occurred to her, this is Mara, the evil one, who has recited the verse desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in me desiring to make me fall away from concentration. Then the, then the Bhakuni Soma, having understood this is Mara the evil one, replied to him in verses, What does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well? When knowledge flows on steadily as one sees correctly into Dhamma. One to whom it might occur, a woman or I'm a man, or I'm anything at all, is fit for Mara to address. One, one more sentence. Yeah. Uh, then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Bhakuni Soma knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. Okay. This one always makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> you see Mara 
sad and disappointed. <laughs> like, puff, exactly. So, okay, so, so what's going on here? Um, so what happens first after she gets this challenge from Mara? Um, what, is, what does Soma realize? She says she she says a human being or a non-human being. So it just she's going okay. This thing is neither here nor there, you know. Um, and then she realizes. Into it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And then she realizes who it is, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. She realizes, oh, this is Mara. So right there is mindfulness, right? She um, she doesn't just believe the thought in her head, like most of us do all day. Um, she instead realizes, she takes a look at it. She's like, what is this coming into my mind? This is a very healthy attitude to have about thoughts. You know, something comes into your mind and says, who are you to be sitting there? Shouldn't you be, you know, preparing for work later or whatever? Instead of saying, oh God, that's right. Or, you know, or why am I thinking so much? I'm supposed to be on the breath. (laughs) Whatever reaction we might have where we, you know, either go with it or go against it. She just says, what is this? What is this? Um, she investigates. And then she realizes, oh, this is not a useful thought. So that's wisdom coming in. She realizes, oh, this is Mara. This is just some thought attempting to drive me away from concentration. And what I, what I appreciate here is that she doesn't just go back to the breath, right? <laughs> so what does she do? She addresses more. Yeah, she addresses. She speaks up. And she actually um, engages that without fighting against it, um, but, you know, without getting angry, basically. Um, but she does address it. And so then she has this lovely soliloquy where she says, what does womanhood... Well, it's not a soliloquy. She's addressing it to Mara. What does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well, when knowledge flows on steadily as one sees correctly into Dhamma? So what does that verse, that first verse say? The only thing that's important is your concentration and the flowing of the Dhamma. It doesn't matter yeah. who she is, whether womanhood or you know, any other beinghood. Yeah, so when one is in concentration and one is seeing correctly, so one is has correct mindfulness and um, perception, then it's a place where womanhood doesn't really matter. You know, it's like you're not thinking. And this may refer to an experience that you've, or, or manhood, it's the same. You know, this may refer to something you've experienced. If you're sitting in meditation, there are times when you completely forget your gender, right? How often are you thinking about your gender during meditation? Sometimes, I suppose, or it's relevant if there's a sexual fantasy or something, but oftentimes, you know, is your breath male or female? You know, is that sensation in your knee, what part of that is male? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not relevant a lot of the time. And so she... She takes him up on that and says, you know, in concentration, womanhood is not that important. And then um, she goes on and says, one to whom it might occur, I'm a woman or I'm a man or I'm anything at all, is fit for Mara to address. So she 
differentiates a mind that is susceptible to Mara from one that isn't. And I think you pointed to this, Kate, when you said uh, you may not have any sense of who you are in meditation. It's not that important, right? Sometimes those thoughts come in. But she's pointing to the space where that kind of identity is not as relevant. Any other comments about this? I'm just um, offering one way of seeing it, but what else sticks out for you in it? I always envision Mara as a woman. Oh, really? Me too. That's true. It could be. It doesn't actually say. It never gives a gender in here. Very interesting. I said he multiple times, because for me, I think of Mara, of Mara as a man. Um, but it doesn't actually have a pronoun in here, does it? I feel like when I've Googled like Mara statues, like a female comes up, I'm pretty sure. Is that right? I could, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could check. Yeah, well, um, temptation is often represented as a woman mm-hmm. in, West, in Western culture. So I think it's um, plausible, and there's no reason that uh, Mara needs to have a particular gender. So lovely. Well, in the story of Buddha's awakening, Mara visits often mm-hmm. during that time, and sometime as temptation for sexual. Yeah, although that's usually said to be his daughters that he brings. He has three daughters and they dance before the Buddha. But it's true, he he does, he or she uh, does try to tempt the Buddha in sensual ways. Sensual, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Um, And then this is a common feature. I just want to point out this thing at the end where it says that Mara, realizing that um, the Bhikkhuni Soma knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. And that's actually a um, common phrase. You don't have it if you have the printout, but I'm looking here on this page. Several of these suttas in a row end that way. It's often when Mara appears and somebody recognizes him or her, um, then Mara has to disappear. Uh, Are there... Does this sound familiar? Are there equivalents of this? Um, This is a fairly common thing, but I'm trying to highlight it. What about in Western mythology where knowing the name of something uh, destroys its power? So if you can name the dragon, for example, the dragon loses its power. Or if you can name the demon that appears, um, you know, if you can say... Rumpelstiltskin, now if you could say Beelzebub or, you know, whoever, um, then that demon or evil creature or whatever uh, loses its magic power, right? This is a sort of a Western idea. And this, you know, I won't try to put an exact parallel, but this sounds similar to me, is that when, in the mind, when we recognize something, and this is mindfulness, right, is that if you see anger, you're no, you're no longer under its power, essentially, the anger may still be there, but if you can see it and say, wow, there's anger, um, then you're not acting out of it. The part that can see the anger is not anger, right? 
So this is very, this is, you know, sort of told in a story-like way in this sutta. Uh, we have principles of mindfulness being conveyed. Is that if you can see something, it, it disappears, its power goes away. Mara is male, by the way. Oh, yeah, have you found, have you confirmed that Mara is male? Yeah. I think Mara could be anything, actually, but maybe he often appears as male. Maybe that was why it was in my mind. What 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 source says that? Wikipedia. Oh well, Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> just mean, so we know, Wikipedia yeah, is not no, always. No. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just, but I yeah. So thank you for looking that up. That's, yeah. That's helpful to have at least. Um, at least in the common culture, it's I mean, believed like, that Mars is There's also male. like the, like the statue here. Uh-huh. So like, there's pictures of him. Okay. Yeah. I think however we want to imagine Mara, if it's relevant for us to imagine Mara in a certain way, I think that's, you know, if it's effective, that's what matters. We see Mara as something that limits us, and however that appears for us is probably important, probably the most important. (coughs) So I want to talk also a little bit about, you know, let's step back and see what was Soma really doing in this. I mean, we can... So the story is, you know, a woman is sitting in meditation, the thought comes up, you're not going to be able to be enlightened because you're a woman. Uh, She sees that for what it is, says gender doesn't matter at the deepest stages of concentration. She's aware that gender is constructed, basically. And she uh, tells that force to take a hike. And it does. So is that a reasonable summary? (laughs) Uh, It's a little bit hard to convey from our Western feminist perspective, you know, um, and what I mean by that is a society that has feminism in it, it's hard to convey how radical this is for the Buddhist time, in that, you know, of course women did what they did, and many women had thoughts that women and men should be equal and so forth, and probably that thought occurred, but um, to actually have written here an example of a woman acting on that um, it's quite radical what Soma did. First of all, being a bhikkhuni at the Buddha, in the Buddha's time was a pretty radical thing. Women at that time mostly lived uh, at the prote- in the protection of a certain man. Uh, your husband, your father, your brother, if you were a widow, maybe something like that. And women who didn't have any men around them uh, didn't do very well in the world. It was a lot harder for them, and they were much more, you know, subject to challenges. And so a woman who actually deliberately gives up her connection to society and to any man that would protect her and goes into being a nun, basically, and which in this case meant a wandering alms person going and you know, getting food, very radical thing to do. And then to be able to stand up in her mind also. So she's already standing up to society saying, this is not the way for a woman to be, you know, much more so than in our society where women are more have more choices. And then to even have the courage to be able to say, no, not only is this something I can do societally, it's something I can do at the deepest level of my heart. I can find that same freedom. I think it must have taken quite a lot of courage. This is my interpretation, but I, I'm really impressed by this. And that this sutta was, you know, survived and was considered important in the text to, to leave it in there. Buddha became her protector. In a way, she took refuge in the Buddha. Yeah, and at the time of the Buddha, of course, people were um, 
I don't know that the Buddha asked people to take refuge in him. I don't, that doesn't sound familiar to me, but they took refuge in his enlightenment. People believed that he was really enlightened and that, and we can have that same uh, refuge. But yeah, so in some sense, but you know, the Buddha wasn't literally there with her on this occasion. I think he may, I mean, I think this sutta may be even more radical than, than the level I'm talking about in that you know, what is it pointing to for us? So I've taken it, put it in context of that society and said Soma was very radical for that time. So then maybe, though, we could turn it back, back on ourselves and say, what would be the equivalent radical thing for us to do? You know, he's saying this is a model of, you know, let go of what your society says about you, let go of what your own mind says about you can, what you can be, in, you know, instead of basking in saying, oh, our society is much more open for women, and then, you know, that's our excuse for not doing what Soma did, because we've already got it, right? <laughs> How about, you know, what's the equivalent for us, letting go of the belief that um, money or technology or even living a conventional life here in the Bay Area, have we even been as radical as Soma? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. In some ways, we're more radical in that we have these women's ability to do things. But I think this is maybe pointing toward you have to go all the way. And for us, that would be something even more, you know, something quite radical. And we haven't necessarily done that in our life. We haven't necessarily given up our own stories of ourselves as deeply as she did. So I still find her inspirational, even though in some ways I enjoy more freedom than her as far as spiritual freedom she went all the way and that's still inspiring to me any other comments what about like people who don't have like the mental faculty to reach concentration or like they have a mental illness like what did the Buddha think about those people like were they still like equal in like his mind Mm. it's a good question so um what if a person can't... This, this particular sutta kind of glorifies concentration. And, um, and so what about people for whom concentration is difficult? The Buddha offered... I'll give a number of different angles on this because it's an important question. It has... Um, so first of all, the Buddha didn't believe that anybody's mind is fixed in the state that it's in. And so um, the faculty of concentration is actually a faculty that's natural to the mind. Everybody has some degree of um, ability to hold the mind on an object for more than one moment. (laughs) You have to have that to live, to get through an action like washing your hands at the sink. Um, You have to have some degree of ability to stabilize the mind on that activity. That, and it's really that simple. So that function of the mind, that the mind can track something for a little bit of time, that's called the faculty of concentration, and it can become a spiritual faculty when it's turned toward the goal of liberation, and it can be developed. So you're not stuck with the level of any mental faculty that you have right now. So the Buddha was radical in saying that the mind can be developed in all dimensions. Um, now, in a practical sense, he did not say that everybody can develop it completely in one lifetime. Um, or that a given person 
can necessarily achieve a certain thing in the time that we're watching them. So remember that the Buddha had a longer time frame in mind. Um, these teachings are all wrapped up with um, with belief in rebirth in the sense that uh, people's lives have a much longer arc. Um, so that's, that's kind of one way to account for people who have, uh, in this lifetime, severe mental challenges or physical challenges or things that prevent the high-level kind of practice that the Buddha talks about. They can still plant seeds of generosity, of ethics, and who knows, um, they may have in the past done some kind of development that will come to fruition in this lifetime in a surprising way. We don't know. The path through up to enlightenment through concentration is not the only path, actually. So that's going to be my second angle on this, is that the Buddha offered a lot of paths toward freedom and toward development of the mind. And I, I don't think he said that you needed to go through a, any particular one sequence. There's a lot of ways to get there, and that's implied in number of suttas. Although, granted, the Pali Canon does emphasize the path of concentration as, as an important factor. So I don't know if that's satisfying at all, but that starts to talk around that. This is a, um, an important question. I'll also cite another sutta. Uh, somebody once said to the Buddha, how many people do you think, I forget exactly how the question was framed, but the essence of it was, can everybody get enlightened, or can only half the people get enlightened, or only a quarter? Come on, give the, give the numbers here. And the, the Buddha didn't answer that directly. He, um, instead, his response was, well, I don't say, he said, instead what I say is that anybody who does get enlightened is going to do it through the, the path and the methods that I teach. So I don't, and anybody who did in the past and anybody who will in the future and anyone who's doing it right now, they have to come through this you know, this, if you're going to get the kind of enlightenment I'm offering, you're going to do it through the method that I offer. And he never says a quarter, a tenth, everyone. He just avoids that completely. He says, but if you do it, and anyone who does do it, does it this way. Yeah? So, um, maybe there isn't an answer to, can everybody? You know, or maybe that answer changes over time. I don't know. I mean, I also feel like the enlightenment's different for everybody in it may be. Yeah, we don't know that enlightenment is the same thing for everyone. It is an absence. In this tradition, it's described as an absence of greed, an absence of hatred, an absence of delusion. As long as those are not present, anything else could be. So it must look different in some cases, right? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the strengths, I think, of this early tradition in its descriptions of enlightenment is that it's very careful not to say what it is. It instead says what is not. And it's about letting go of all the things that it's not. And then whatever's left, that's it. <laughs> it's kind of freeing. <laughs> Even enlightenment is not confined. Okay, so... So women in the suttas. Here we've just seen our first example. Um, this is a a nun, and then the other example is another sutta that we read late, if we get to it, the one that was by Dhammadina, so that's a, a nun also, and she's actually giving a teaching in that sutta, which is nice um, I can say overall that these are the exceptions that prove the rule, I mean, there aren't a lot of women in the Pali Canon um, they're not 
featured prominently, and in particular, there aren't a lot of lay women. Uh, there's more nuns, I think. Um, it's just how it is. <laughs> and we don't know if there were originally more teachings that included them, and those were lost or filtered out over time, or if they were never there. I don't think we know that for sure. Um, remember that the texts were largely out of just necessity preserved by monks, you know, by men who were not spending all their days being farmers and making a living, so they were monks who had chosen that life. This was an oral tradition, as Kate pointed out at the beginning, so, and it was men who recited, and, and then, you know, there were nuns, even from the very beginning, um, but not as many as monks, as you can imagine. And then when things started to be written down, there were monasteries and so forth, and it just, just by nature, um, largely this was preserved by men over time. And so you can imagine that there might be a bias. <laughs> um, but we don't know. You know. We don't know for sure. A lot of this is being uncovered now, actually, through our scholarship. And But it is clear, I think, that um, now alluding to your question, I didn't really answer your question of whether the Buddha thinks everyone is equal. Um, I don't know that he would think in that way. I don't think he does think in that way. But from the very beginning, he didn't exclude anybody from his teaching. It's very clear that um, he believed that all humans have the potential for enlightenment. Um, and that was... Uh, the potential, I said, not that they would get there in this lifetime. But I don't think he would have said anyone was completely outside of that. And so he did offer his teachings freely to men, to women, to monks and nuns. There were, you know, bhikkhunis are mentioned. He was ordaining women, although there's, you know, some question about how that all came about. And there are examples um, of the Buddha praising women. So, for example, um, the... Uh, the woman in the uh, story that we haven't read yet, but the one about the teaching that um, the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina is offering, he says that um, she was the um, foremost, I believe, in offering the Dhamma, something like that. So he had, you know, he praised women as being the strongest in certain areas. But, you know, there's always the question, and for us as women, those of us who are women, is where do we find the role models? And so that's partly you know, why there's now more scholarship into that area. Any other comments about this or questions? Okay. So um, let's go on to the next uh, sutta that we were going to look at, and that is... Um, on the, back to the topic of meditation and analysis of the mind. So we're going to look at uh, SN 1223, which is um, Transcendental Dependent Origination. I'm trying to find it in here. And it's definitely an um, analytical one, so prepare yourself. <laughs> we won't read exactly the whole thing, but... Um, in this book, it's called Proximate Cause. Um, this Bhikkhu Bodhi translation, I think it has, uh, it's called the Upanisa Sutta in, in Pali. 
And those of you who have the printout, I'm going to have to guide you through it because I printed it out incorrectly, but we can at least get started. Um, I think what I've... Okay, so who would like to begin with this first paragraph about the destruction of the taints? Yeah, Nick. The destruction of the taints, monks, is for one who knows and sees, I say, not for one who does not know and does not see. Knowing what, seeing what, knowing what, seeing what does the destruction of the taints occur, (laughs) such as uh, material form, such as the arising of material form, such as the passing away of material form, such as feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness, such as the arising of consciousness, such as the passing away of consciousness. For one who knows and sees this, monks, the destruction of the taints occurs. Okay, so we'll stop there for a moment. This is kind of the introduction, and he's um, he's saying, what is he saying? So... First of all, let's start with this phrase, destruction of the taints. So this, this um, sutta has a lot of kind of coded language in it that's repeated in other suttas, so you learn to recognize what it means. So destruction of the taints, what is that um, pointing toward? Well, I, I, I don't know what the taint, beyond the hindrances... I suppose it's not as far as enlightenment. Well, actually, um, destruction of the taints is usually a phrase for freedom. Oh, it is? For the enlightenment. Oh, my goodness. So then we should talk about what the taints are. Um, I assumed you all knew the English word taint. It's uh, something that damages or stains um, something. And then to destroy that would be to completely eliminate any taint in the mind. So the mind becomes completely... Uh, enlightened or awake. At least that's what I understand that phrase to me in the suttas. That's what I've heard. The taints um, is also a coded word that means something specific. Um, It's a translation, of course, and um, it's, I don't know if it's a good translation or not, but the the taints um, are, there are three common taints, and I think there's another one that's sometimes mentioned, The first is the taint of sensual desire. So the mind is tainted by its um, wanting something, basically wanting pleasure in some way. And then there's the the taint of being, is what it's usually called, but it means um, wanting to be something. The taint of wanting to have a certain identity um, is the second taint. And then the third is the taint of ignorance, which is not understanding... uh, Usually not understanding the Four Noble Truths, but it's not um, seeing things as they are, not understanding how things arise and pass. And in particular, not understanding what causes suffering, and, and therefore one does things that cause suffering. And every once in a while there's another taint, the taint of views thrown in, but I think um, I think it's a subset. So... Those are the, that's what the word taints means. And so a mind that doesn't have taints uh, is free of sensual desire, is free of needing to be something, and is completely able to see clearly. That's 
So it's pretty good. <laughs> Destruction of the taints. So he he says. Um, so presumably the monks are interested in the destruction of the taints. This is why maybe why one practices is how can I achieve this destruction of the taints, if you will. And so he's so the the Buddha is going to teach about that, and he says, I say that this comes about for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. So he starts out with a statement that's a little cryptic, you know, okay, so I have to see something. And then um, he, he talks more specifically about what he means by that. He says, um, what? What do you have to know and see for this destruction of the taints to come about? So that if we know destruction of the taints means freedom from suffering, he's saying, what do you have to see to be free? <laughs> and now he's going to tell us this, so this is the teaching. And he offers this, again, somewhat stilted language, but this is, I'm introducing you to language that you'll see again and again in the suttas. Such is material form. Um, such is the arising of material form. I have a slightly, I'm remembering what Mick said because I have a slightly different translation. Such is the cessation or the passing away of material form. And, uh, oh, and the, just those. So, um, And then the same for feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Does anybody know what this set of qualities is? Material form, feeling, perception, mental formation. The aggregates, thank you. That's right. So this is one of those Buddhist lists that we hear. And the aggregates are somewhat, they're not taught commonly at regular evening sanghas, but they, are, they do appear in the text. And the, the aggregates now that we've introduced yet another term, this, we're going to walk through Buddhist terminology tonight. This refers essentially to one way of seeing a person. So these, are, these words sound odd, but basically he's saying, you know, what is, it, what is our experience of being a person? Well, we have an experience of material form, our body, basically, and the world that we're in. We have an experience, a physical experience of physicality. But that's not the only thing we experience, right? We also have our, our mental world, our internal world, and that consists of... Uh, this says feeling, it usually refers to feeling tone, so whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or the impact that something has on us, uh, our perception, so what we imagine it to be, this is a bell, or it could be a helmet, whatever it is, but it's, I know what this is. I, I match it to something in my mind that says I know what this is, and I put a label on it. So that's the function called perception Mental formations or volitional formations are all the stuff that the mind does to interact with and interpret its experience. So thoughts, emotions, stories, views, um, will, you know, the will, the intention to do something, all of these, it's a big category. So this is like the whole functioning of the mind, and that's the stuff that you can't quiet down when you sit down on the cushion. Those are all the mental formations. And then there's consciousness, the ability of the mind to know. It's a, consciousness is considered very simple in this. It's just the, the bare knowing of experience. So the Buddha says this is a sort of a conglomeration of stuff that makes up a person, um, that makes up the experience, let me say, that makes up the experience of being a person. I should be careful with the language. Um, 
And there, you know, there could be other ways of describing what it's like to be a person. He also describes it in terms of sense experience, um, for example. Um, but this model of the aggregates is one of them. Does that kind of make sense? Um, you don't have to believe it, um, but he's, he offers it as a model of what it's like to be a human. And then, so he says, for each of these five aspects of being a person, we could um, understand such it is. So that's just present moment experience. Such is material form. Right now, this is the body. The body is such. It is an experience that is what? Uh, solidity, um, t- a certain temperature, feelings of tightness or pain or um, stretching. I don't know what the body feels like for you right now, but that's what it is. And then there's this such, um, such its origin. That's what mind says, or the arising of material form. So you understand that material form is not a fixed thing. Um, the material experience that we have changes, and it'll arise in certain ways. Like if I hit my hand, I feel that. I feel pain, or I feel pressure, or I feel um, my fingers are a little bit cold. <laughs> so when I touch my hand, it feels cold. So I understand that there um, are ways that um, physical experience comes about, and then there's a ways that it ends. You know, I don't feel what I felt at breakfast this morning. I'm not feeling that anymore. And I may have observed that sensation pass away. So this is actually, um, it sounds really kind of strange to be talking about it so explicitly. It's like, okay, I get it, you know. Feelings change or my, you know, my thoughts come and go. But the Buddha is actually pointing at this as something profound. The very flow of experience that we experience 24-7, except when we're asleep uh, or not conscious, Um, you know, this is is the stuff of how the destruction of the taints comes about. How it's, it's so simple and so profound. He says the flow of your experience is the key. Um, Observing this, now, just knowing it at the level of, you know, what I'm talking about right now may not be deep enough to free the mind, but he says that it's this very simple practice, um, and this is what's going to what's going to do it for us. Now, that too is quite a pithy teaching. Observing arising and passing of the five aggregates. Wow, really? Is that it? And then, he, so he understands. Okay, that might not be quite enough for them either. So the rest of the sutta he unpacks. Um, he unpacks a little bit more what he means by that. How how is this process going to happen? That the destruction of the taints can come about. Those of you that have the printout, please skip to the back page. Yeah, Kate got it. Um, I have I have them printed out. Oh, sorry, if you print it out on your own computer, it's correct. If I printed it out, which is for Kate and Nick, I uh, I got the the front and the print double sided um, incorrect. I have, a, I have to do it manually, and I got it incorrect. Okay, so the next um, section now talks about. This, this name of the sutta, Proximate Cause. So he talks about what causes knowledge of the destruction of the taints. And he said this is not without a cause. Um, I don't know exactly what your language says. Would somebody read that first one? The knowledge of destruction with respect to destruction has a supporting condition, I say. It does not lack a supporting condition 
And what is the supporting condition for the knowledge of destruction? Liberation should be the reply. Okay, thank you. So he talks about the... Um, Approximate cause. What is the phrase for it there? The it's not without the supporting condition. Thank you. So it has a supporting condition. So he doesn't say this is like a magic thing that is just going to happen. He says destruction of the taints, which is or knowledge of the destruction of the taints, um, has a supporting condition there's a reason why it will happen and it will happen in the presence of liberation of the mind so there you go and then he goes backwards from that he says okay but liberation you say well well then how do i get liberation he says well this too has a supporting condition and it should be said dispassion and then you can say well okay well what about that you know what's the cause of that and so he goes backwards from there Oh, dispassion has a, a supporting condition also. It's not, it doesn't just happen randomly. It has disenchantment as its supporting condition. And it keeps backing up from there um, through <coughs> what? Okay, so he backs up through summary of dependent origination. Where am I? Okay, so knowledge and vision of things as they really are is the supporting condition for disenchantment. Concentration is the supporting condition for knowledge and vision of things as they are. Happiness is the support for concentration. Tranquility is the support for happiness. Rapture is the support for tranquility. Gladness or joy is the support for rapture. Faith is the support for gladness or joy. And then it gets very interesting. Suffering is the support for faith. Suffering Suffering is the support for faith. Supporting condition. Yeah? So he has backed us down from um, full liberation, understanding that your mind is free. Um, He then says, this is caused by, or has supporting conditions, Maybe causes too strong, proximate conditions of the mind actually being free. And that comes about from these other things. And he backs it all the way down to something we can understand, which is suffering. <laughs> We've all experienced that. So it's actually quite sweeping and brilliant in that what, you know, let's get past the, I know the language about this is not without a supporting condition. It, sh- it should be said such and such. What he says is you can start with suffering, which we all get, and from there, step by step, you can go to liberation. It tells you what the steps are. It's quite impressive. Um, now, he actually doesn't stop there. In the sutta, he um, backs up and says, actually, suffering has a cause, too, um, which is, I believe, birth. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then he, he backs through that uh, all the way back to ignorance, which is, of course, the cause of suffering, the ultimate cause of suffering. So it's quite um, an extended chain, and, and I want to just put some structure on it. So there's two um, teachings being presented here. One of them is a teaching that's 
offered in other suttas called the teaching of dependent origination, which explains how ignorance leads to suffering. So it's a, it's a teaching about the second noble truth, about the cause of suffering. Does that make sense? Um, we're not going to go through all dependent origination. It's actually listed in several different ways in the text. But usually it has 12 links, which are listed. I've, I've listed them on your sheet, on your summary sheet. Summary of dependent origination. Ignorance goes to volitional formations, goes to consciousness, etc. Ending in suffering at the end. Does everybody see that list that I wrote on the sheet? Okay. So that is explaining how we get from our usual state of not understanding things (laughs) to causing our own, you know, causing suffering because of that. Because we didn't understand, we make wrong assumptions, we cling to something, and then it, it burns us, basically. That was a real quick summary. Then he says, um, but this, this teaching on what's now called, in modern language, transcendental dependent origination, takes that suffering and goes in a different direction. You can meet suffering with ignorance, you know, with more ignorance, and then you go around the loop again, right? And this is the loop. Suffering leads, ignorance leads to suffering, if you meet that suffering with not understanding it fully, um, then you'll go on to more suffering. However, you have a choice. You can meet suffering instead with what? Faith. Faith, exactly. And that takes you on a whole different path. That takes you on this transcendent spiral that goes um, up and out. So we've looked at conceptually what's so what I, the image I have in mind, just in case this is helpful for anyone, is I see um, dependent origination as being a circle in a plane. You know, you just go around and around and around like a dog running around a stake that it's tied to, and that's ignorance goes to suffering, goes to ignorance, goes to suffering. Mm-hmm. But if at one point you meet the suffering with faith, you are projected up out of the plane into a spiral that starts to go upward. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you can be in the circle on the plane, or you can come out and go upwards, or downwards if you prefer depth. Um, if this mental image doesn't work for you, just forget about it. <laughs> I like it. So, you know, what does this look like practically? You know, what does this mean in my life? So ignorance, an example of... Oh, so let's take an example of suffering. Um, so... Um, anger arises in my mind. I'm frustrated by something that happens. My computer breaks. And um, I can meet that with ignorance, which is, this is a terrible problem in my life. I hate my computer. It always breaks. I'll never understand this. Um, Why did it have to happen today? It's all about me. It always happens to me. It always happens to me, exactly. So this is pure ignorance, because this is just seeing the world as I'm an entity that things are happening to, and they're terrible. And so, you know, I meet the suffering. It isn't that great for your computer to break. That's a form of suffering if you wanted to do something. So I meet it with ignorance, and that leads to what? More suffering. Around and around and around and around. You see the circle happening there? We've all done this, I know. And, but the other, another option, the Buddha says, is that you can meet that with faith instead. And what that might look like, could look multiple different ways, but one way it could look is you, your computer doesn't work, 
and you say, oh, and you feel the mind starting to contract, and instead you meet it with some mindfulness, and you say, you know what, um, stuff arises and stuff passes, the, you know, anicca, so there's a little bit of wisdom there, and then you say, and then you realize, if I go down that path of getting angry, it's going to lead to suffering. Instead, I know there's another way. I know that it's possible to practice instead. And I'm going to take this as a practice opportunity. And instead of investing in your anger, you, you, you spark just a little bit of energy and interest and faith that your mindfulness practice and your Dharma practice is relevant in this moment. <laughs> That's a moment of faith. Oh, the Dharma is relevant right now. So you might not call that faith. It doesn't look like, you know, bowing to the Buddha. But that's a moment of faith. You've made a choice that this is a better investment for your mind. And from there, I don't know that you go immediately to gladness and joy, but you could, if your computer's broken, but you could, for example, have a moment of joy of saying, you know what, I just avoided, I did it. I just avoided that moment of anger. And right now, I'm not upset. I can actually deal with my computer not working. And you might actually have a little bit of gladness about the fact that you have a practice and it kicked in at that moment. Thank goodness my practice kicked in. I'm not suffering right now. You know, I don't know if we're going to get through the whole cycle this way. We could. Um, But, you know, this is the idea that you're now on a different path. And this path goes toward being liberated from um, what you know, what you could have fallen into, essentially, with that particular moment of suffering. And he's saying that this, is, this can happen in a, in a moment, you know, the moment when your computer breaks, and it can happen over the arc of your practice. This is what Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about, Kaylin, when you, you went to this talk. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi recently gave a lecture on this whole, on this sutta, and he described it as the arc of somebody's practice. So you spend a lot of time in ignorance, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to live, and then at some point you meet the teachings of the Buddha and something and it resonates for you and you have that moment of faith, essentially, where this makes sense to you. Not that you're going to necessarily follow it every moment after that, but that first moment is an important one. And then at some point you get interested and maybe you're excited and you, you, you have enough faith that you go to IMC and you experience some happiness there. Right, and so there's this sort of an arc, and he, he says this may you know this may go through years of time, of course, or decades or lifetimes. I don't know, but a person becomes um, you know inspired by and moved by the practice, and that this is, these are these early feelings of gladness, joy, rapture, um, etc., going toward happiness, a calming down of the mind, which it then feels happy. And at some point, the mind becomes able to do concentration. This doesn't necessarily mean the jhanas have arisen, but you know, the mind becomes settled. There's, we'll probably go through this cycle many times and deepening it along the way. And then um, for when the mind is concentrated, the, the fruit of that is that we can see better. You know, you're on the ship and it's in a storm and you can't see anything out of the, par- out of the telescope that you're looking through. But if the waters are calm, then you can see, or better yet, if you're on dry land, and you've really got that stable base, and you can actually see what you're looking at, so you get a knowledge, you get this vision of how things are. This goes with learning the teachings also, so you learn um, the, no, the Four Noble Truths, you learn the three characteristics, 
know, within this tradition, that's what we would say that the, the, these insights point toward. And then, you know, once you understand, oh, everything changes, things aren't reliable, um, then there are these things that a couple people already asked about before class started. Disenchantment and dispassion. Oh, could you define rapture first? Rapture. Um, yes, one of the earlier ones. So that's PT in uh, Pali. Rapture. So this is um, a feeling of joy, real joy and delight. Um, often it's a physical, even a physical feeling, like the body feels. In meditation, it comes in all kinds of forms, like energy moving through the body, the body feeling very light, um, feelings of sort of... Um, showering through the body, uh, tingly sensations. These things are usually just put in the category of PT in meditation. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. They're not necessarily pleasant, by the way. <laughs> They're not always pleasant. So then we get to these stages of disenchantment and dispassion. Those words, as I mentioned before, are uh, negative in our society, but they're, they're considered very important in Buddhism, and they're meant to be that you're waking up from the dream, you know, you, you, you thought happiness was going to be about getting the new car, and you really know for sure that that's not true. Um, I mean, we know that at an intellectual level, but you really see deeply that the world is not going to fulfill that for us. And from that, there's a feeling of Dispassion, actually, kind of a feeling of lightening. You know, you're letting go of those strings that were binding the mind before, things that we thought we had to do, things that we thought we had to be. Suddenly there's this feeling like, oh, I don't have to do that. I don't have to be that. Why, why was I following that convention necessarily? So Soma had a lot of dispassion, right? The nun we just read about. Um, she wasn't concerned with those things. And that is what leads to liberation of the mind, letting go of, um, of the clinging, the clinging that's causing the suffering. And interestingly, though, that's not the, um, the last step. The last step is this knowledge of the destruction of the taints. What do you think that's about? Like it reminds me of when Buddha reaches enlightenment. It's like I know you are, you know, sort of just that like very um, like that feeling of liberation, that feeling of like luminous kind of insight over everything. Mm. You know. Yeah. So um, the liberation is there, but it's also important to know that we're liberated at the same time. That's what you're saying. Yeah. That's um. I think that's the implication. There. Any other thoughts about this? It may be possible that um, there is knowledge in the moment. Like if you read, I'm now thinking of other suttas that um, talk about the Buddha's experience of enlightenment. Um, you know, we don't know what it was, but we have some texts that record um, some things. And there's often a sense that he 
uh, when the mind is liberated, there's actually sort of stock phrases around it that say, he realizes birth has ended, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming into any state of being, or there is no more for this world, something like that. And so it's often said that um, liberation comes with this understanding at the same time that, that those fetters have been cut, that the mind is completely free. So there is, I think, a, sort of an immediate knowing. And in addition, there may be a little bit longer term, this is now an interpretation, but I'll offer it, is that often we can have meditative experiences, and maybe you've already had some, where it's not really clear in the moment what was let go of. You know something happened, and then there's sort of an integration period, and later you, you realize, oh, you know, my behavior has changed, or my, there's something lighter in my understanding, or I, I don't feel as attached to that view that seemed so important before. And you, know, you didn't necessarily know in the moment that that's what was being let go of, um, but over time you come to see, you know what, something's different here. And we, there, I, I think maybe we can't even always completely articulate it, uh, exactly what, what was let go of. But I know from my own practice there is um, this sense that there's a, um, an integration of, of the conscious awareness of something having happened after it did. So I'm taking a little bit of liberty compared to what Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about where he described this as being kind of a one-shot deal. You know, you go through over your lifetime and, or however many it takes to go from a state of suffering to this state of total liberation. I think this we can go through this transcendental cycle many times in small ways. You know, we can be liberated not from all the taints, but we could be liberated from a view or from some particular clinging that we have. And I think that sort of mini-liberation follows these same patterns. I'm offering that for, as something for you to test in your own experience. Because we let go of things, just like we suffer at various times during the day, we let go of things at various times during the day too. Um, you know, that very moment that we just talked about where the computer breaks and you have that moment where you say, nope, I'm going to kick in my practice. That's a letting go in that moment, a letting go of the possibility of going into anger instead. There's a little moment of freedom there, and maybe you very quickly have zipped through this cycle. I don't know. It's one interpretation. I encourage you to see if that's a useful way of thinking about it. Is is equanimity in? I mean, it's not mentioned at all. No, it's not mentioned equi- here. Equanimity is sort of part of disenchantment and dispassion. I think that would be a reasonable place to put them. Yeah, D- dispassion I think is very much about equanimity, because dispassion means you're not getting sucked into anything for and against being right, for and against right. things. So that's pretty much like equanimity, yeah. And it not, is... Not negative. Right, not in yeah. a negative way. I mean, not necessarily dispassion is either. They're sort of similar, I think. Yeah. Yeah, um, dispassion... Because if we're it's not, not getting sucked into it, why should we you know, call dispassion negative or positive? Right, I don't think it's meant to be... Uh, it's certainly not meant to be negative. Um, it may actually feel somewhat freeing. You know, the experience of dispassion, you can realize, wow, I'm not, I'm not sucked into that. There can be a little bit of happiness that goes with that. 
And in, uh, in other lists, not this particular one, equanimity is not named, but in other lists, equanimity is usually the state that the mind is in just before liberation. And in this one, dispassion comes right before liberation. So the mind becomes so balanced that it can open in a different way that it, than it can if it has any bias to it. Okay. So in terms of, this is a highly, like I said, there's a highly analytical sutta. Um, although it has this um, very beautiful uh, image at the end. But I, think, I think it's worth reading. I'll read it. Um, I'll read my version, which I think is slightly different than the one you have on your translation, because I've used some of Tanjeff's language there. But this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi he says. He says, Just as, Bhikkhus, when rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the cleft, gullies, and creeks. These being full, fill up the pools. These being full, fill up the lakes. These being full, fill up the streams. These being full, fill up the rivers. And these being full, fill up the great ocean. So too, with ignorance as proximate cause, volitional formations come to be with volitional formations as proximate cause, consciousness, and so on through all of um, uh, dependent origination and then through transcendental to liberation uh, being the cause for the knowledge of destruction of the tanks. Yeah, very beautiful summary. What do you think of this image of the water? Start somewhere. Yeah, just start somewhere and flow. That's a yeah. That's you can a nice start way to say. And then you end with an ocean. And you end with an ocean. You start anywhere along the way. You jump in the if you're at the stream or the river or the lake, it doesn't matter. It's all going in the same direction. Yeah. Just start small. And you can start small. Start with the drops, and and it will turn into the ocean, which is quite an inspiring image. It's also like it's still water at the end of the day, right? It's still you. It's the same energy. It's just kind of in different places. And, you know, it takes a different form, but it's still basically the same. Oh, that's interesting, too. Yeah, the notion that um, the water is the same thing. It's just the flow of your experience. You know, go back to the very beginning of the sutta form, feeling, mental form, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. This is what makes up being a person, and it's. Um, just keeps flowing along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like gravity's on your side. Like gravity's you're, on your side. Meaning yeah. once you realize, once you get into it. Kind of once you get in the stream, you're going to the ocean. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I like about this also, is it has a feeling of, I mean, inevitability is maybe yeah. too strong, but yeah, basically, yeah, once you get in, it's only, it's going in that direction. And that provides for me a lot of confidence, you know, because I know there are times when it doesn't feel like practice is flowing down any streams. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh boy, is this this part of the path too? Or I feel like I'm going backwards, or it feels dry, or something. Um, and this this image just reminds me. Oh yeah, and it's a big journey. You know, you start with little drops, and it's a long way down the mountain. Of course, there's going to be some times when it doesn't necessarily feel like this, but it's going in this direction really strongly. It's a very powerful image, actually.
There's interconnectedness in it as well. And there's interconnectedness, so each thing flows on to the next thing. It's all yeah. part of something else. Yeah. Yes. So this is a this text has a more subtle pointing that you're pointing to of inner um, interdependence, if you yeah, will, um, and uh, not self as a consequence of that. Beautiful. Thank you. So in practical terms, I mean, if you need something to hold on to from this sutta, it's that choice moment. You know, when we meet with suffering, are we going to meet it with ignorance or are we going to meet it with faith or practice, essentially? You're going to meet it with the Dharma. And that's something we can um, relate to, I think, moment to moment. Okay, so... Gosh... We got so into that. We're running out of time. <laughs> um, it's good. So why don't we skip to a, a short one that we're able to do then, which is this um, poem at the end, Patachara's Enlightenment poem, which you have on your printout on, the, I think, the second page. Um, or if it's on the fourth page if you actually printed it correctly. <laughs> it's called Fig, Fig 510. And that um, abbreviation is for Terigata, which are the enlightenment poems of the nuns. Uh, so nuns that became free expressed that through some poem. There's, of course, the Terigata also, which are the enlightenment poems of the monks. Okay, so um, would somebody like to read this enlightenment poem? That was, um, she notices the foot water flowing, and that is what helps calm her mind, actually. Um, she, she turned the lamp off. Yeah, she turned the lamp off. And she went into, she was going to go to bed, right? She went in, she checked her bed, probably for bugs or something. And then she, um, you know, the 
the wick, the wick pushes the wick down um, into the oil, so it gets extinguished, right? Very mundane moment, and her mind is free. So enlightenment does not have to come in deep, absorptive concentration while you've been on retreat for three months, and then there's going to be this thing. Um, now, she was a, she's practiced for a long time, and she's a little frustrated too, right? She says, how come... I've been practicing for a long time and I haven't attained Nibbana yet. <laughs> How come I'm not free? Uh, I'm not doing these worldly things. Um, but then, you know, it's a surprise. You know, it can come at any time, really. Now, her mind was trained. It's not that she didn't do anything. Um, she practiced for a long time and it says here that she had calmed her mind. So there's that, that sense that the mind should be tranquil in some way. But she wasn't doing anything exotic, she was going to bed. And I, I find this quite inspiring. Um, and of course there's a lot of nice imagery, you know, the, the lamp going out is like um, Nibbana is another is another meaning of the word Nibbana in this, these ancient Indian languages is extinguishing. And it's said that this is the extinguishing of, of what? Of ignorance. And so there's a you know some imagery going on here. But it's lovely, right? We also might see some elements of the path in here. So, again, this is a little bit my interpretation, but I, I read in it that she starts out with a, a worldly image, you know, this is how normal people live. They have a job, and they earn money, and they feed their family. That's the usual way. And she says, I didn't do that. Um, I went this other way. It says, pure virtue. So these are the ethical steps of the path. So she says, I fulfilled the foundation. Um, not lazy or proud. So she's done her effort, and she's not conceited about it. So she's worked on her mind also. So she has energy and effort for the practice. Um, and she, but then she's kind of waiting, like, where's the, where's the fruit? And then there's, some, there's a reference to noticing the water flowing from high to low. So just mindfulness of what's going on. And from that, her mind is calmed, concentration. So we have kind of some references to common elements of the path, right? But then um, I like that uh, the actual freeing of the mind is a surprise. It, it just appears. Um, with a mind that's prepared, it's ready to open, it's ready to extinguish suffering, and that can come really any time. This is an interpretation also, but I, I like to interpret this as you do the practice and the rest is not up to you. You, know, you do the practice and then you turn the lamp off and go to bed. <laughs> and you just keep doing this. You just keep living this life. Um, and and the result will come, like water flowing down the hill, like it says in... Yeah, this is a different kind of um, image, right? The one about transcendental dependent origination is very analytical. It says you do this, and then you do this, and then you concentrate the mind, and then this happens. And this has a little bit of that element, but it's more like holistic. You know, It's like all the, all the pieces are there, and then the thing can happen. So the one is a little bit more linear than the other. But they're both pointing toward the ability of the mind to do something when the supportive conditions are in place. 
And this is what the Buddha taught in the analysis of the mind. He says the mind is this thing that's not really a thing. It's a process with all these elements coming and going. Conditions for this create the conditions for the next moment, the next moment. And it's possible to take this whole jumble and point it in some direction through the practices that I offer. And that gets the mind into a place where the conditions that are present can add up to uh, the ability to see beyond even itself and to free itself. And it's a, it's a crazy process of aligning this, all these forces in the mind through the practices that he offers so that they contain more wholesomeness, more mindfulness, deeper awareness, more tranquility. And at some point, the conditions are there. It's not, it's not uncaused. It can be created. But then what, what it opens to is what's uncreated. Very interesting. That's it. That's the teachings in a nutshell. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Now go do it. Now do it, exactly. So I think we have to stop, actually. Um, And I know that three weeks is really, it's a tall order to try to go through what is in the suttas in that time. But I, I sincerely hope that what we've been through gives you a flavor of what's covered in the teachings. The Buddha is offering us instructions He's offering us um, kind of a a framework for our life um, and simple things as simple as how do you speak, how do you act, how do you live your life in this world that doesn't support this kind of practice. And then, you know, when you're interested in it, there's a bunch of stuff about how does your mind work? What are the elements of being a person? (laughs) What What causes what? How does the mind shape itself into this thing that can be free? Um, and it's all built on these foundations of how we live and it's incredibly detailed and he offered it in so many different ways um, that there's got to be a way in for us there's something for everyone in the suttas I think (laughs) I think we didn't even see all of them (laughs) so let me ask um, now actually I'm going to stop the recording hang on because we're basically done with this. So, the end of this.